Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jacob Warren. If I've never had the pleasure of meeting you, I'd love to meet you after the gathering today. I'll be back along the back wall or about by the uh, back doors as you exit this morning. Uh, but I serve as one of the pastors at Veritas Church here. And this morning we're continuing our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and so go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Hebrews chapter 2. We will be starting in verse 5 together this morning. Uh, if you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles off the table at the back, um, please consider that Bible our gift to you this morning. If you don't own a Bible, we love the Bible here at Veritas, and we want you to love the God of the Bible uh, that we think speaks the very words of God to us this morning. And so I'll read our text this morning, but it'll come up on the screens for you as well. God's very word to us this morning in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 5, speaks to us like this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, humanity, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he, Jesus, might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers and my sisters. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray again and ask for God's help as we go through this scripture together this morning. Jesus, um, we pray to you because you are the one that we are told can help. God, we pray um, that you who uphold by the word of your power, uh, the one by whom and through whom all things exist. God, you have given us your word this morning. You've given us um, your word to proclaim in, in gatherings like this. And God, we pray uh, not only for our congregation here, hearing these words from Hebrews, but the other churches in Fayetteville this morning uh, that are gathered together to hear your word proclaimed. God, we, uh, we pray that in those other churches, the gospel would be proclaimed boldly. God, that the, the work of your spirit uh, would happen in those places and here 
that you would stir hearts to faith this morning, maybe raggedy faith this morning of those who feel like they just had to drag themselves through the door. And may they remember uh, that it is God who sustains, and it is God who provides. And God, those of us that uh, maybe feel bold uh, in our faith, that we feel encouraged, God, I pray that this morning we would further be encouraged by these words from your scripture, that you are a God who not only suffered for us, uh, that you took on flesh for us, but you you help us as our great high priest. God, we thank you for this truth in Jesus' name. Well, uh, the way that this passage ends, and if you didn't catch my inflection in there, kind of highlighting these words, I highlighted the word help all throughout this passage. At the end of the passage, it mentions the word help three different times, and I might ask you this morning, like, what comes to mind when you hear the word help? Uh, maybe uh, you can think about the last good pickle you found yourself in, right? Uh, where you needed some help. Uh, maybe you had a flat tire and you were on the side of the road and you're like, man, I could really use some help right now. Uh, maybe you're a parent and uh, your kid grew up in the middle of the night and then in the middle of you cleaning up whatever mess that was, the baby woke up as well and you're just like, I just need some help here. I, I really need some help. Uh, maybe you uh, are a little bit uh, of a different generation, and every time I've said help, you think about that old Beatles song. Help, you know? I need somebody. Help. Anybody, you know? Uh, I grew up with that song on the radio with my grandpa, you know, Golden Oldies in the truck and all that. Loved it. Uh, but maybe you're a little cynical, and when you hear the word help, you think, help just means weakness. And you think, ah, I don't need any help. I don't need anyone else's help. But the truth is, we do all need help. We all need wisdom uh, from something outside of ourselves to tell us how to live. We all need help from others when it comes to those times of need, when you, when you really do find yourself in a pickle and you need people to come around you to help you out. Most importantly, we need help from someone who can restore our broken relationship with God. See, in this passage today, the author of Hebrews is building a case that we should come to Jesus for help. And his argument flows like this, that we should come to Jesus for help because he inaugurates a new humanity. He, Jesus, he also suffers to bring us into his family. And finally, he saves us from the power of death. So let's first look at, uh, at how Jesus inaugurates this better humanity. See, the author begins in verse 5 here of chapter 2 of Hebrews with a reminder, again, if last week wasn't enough, like, angels aren't as important as what his audience wants to make them out to be. Remember last week, if you were here, uh, angels uh, were a really big deal to this society, these people that he's writing to, because if they would just compromise on who Jesus was, maybe just say he was just the greatest person who ever lived, or maybe a really impressive angel, they could fold back into their, their family and be protected, because they had the threat of death from Nero and the Romans, and then they also had the threat of being ostracized from their community, their families that they grew up in, by claiming that Jesus was the Messiah. That man that got crucified on the cross actually resurrected from the grave three days later. And now they're out of a home. They're out of their families because they've been rejected. Because it was a heresy to say that a man could be God if you were a Jew. But the author of Hebrews says, in effect, in this these verses 5 through 9, not only are angels incomparable to Jesus. That Jesus is in a league of his own because he is God incarnate. Angels aren't even the one destined to rule the world to come. Humans are. Then to illustrate, he quotes from Psalm 8. And I love what he says here. He doesn't say, hey, I'm quoting from Psalm 8 here. He just says, like a, you know, any, any good pastor worth their salt. It says somewhere, 
right? Like somewhere in the Old Testament it says this. So just to give you like a little bit of, uh, if you feel like unconfident about how to quote your Bible, uh, if you have ingested the scriptures and you have internalized uh, what the scriptures say and you just can't write remember what the reference is, it's okay. It's all right. The Bible does it. We can do this too, right? But Psalm 8 is interesting because the psalmist starts by meditating on how small humanity seems in the world. See, the psalmist writes, what is man that you are mindful of him? Almost like this wonder that God would remember us tiny little humans, that you kind of lose us in the junk drawer of planet Earth. But Psalm psalmist continues by reminding us of God's glorious intention for humanity. Namely, that we would do two things. We would reflect his image in the world and that we would rule creation on his behalf. And it isn't a wonder, if that was the intention with humanity, how often we forget that. What God's intention was for us in the beginning, that God made us in his own image. That we would be like little mirrors reflecting what God is like in the world. It might be hard for some of us, but we must remember that not all, though everyone follows Jesus in this world, all human beings are made in the image of God. They bear his image. That means that every human being is worthy of dignity and respect. Every single one of us. It's not the only reason God made humans. He also intended for us to rule. And don't just take my word for it. This is on the very first page of the Bible. Genesis 1.28, this will come up on the screen for us, says this. And God blessed them. He blessed humanity. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds, the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, how's that for a job description, right? I wish that was my job description. It kind of is, though, right? See, God says, make babies, fill the earth, subdue it. That means take control of the world around you and then rule over all of these creatures. And Psalm 8 beautifully retells this by saying that God has crowned humanity with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, all of collective humanity. There's just one problem with this, right? The writer of Hebrews knows it. Look again at the end of verse 8 in, in Hebrews chapter 2. He says, now putting in everything in subjection to him, humanity, he left nothing outside of his control, his, his tone changes here. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That word him here, to double down on this, and the ESV refers to humanity as a whole, not just one man or even the God-man Jesus here. It is certainly true, though, that at the beginning of all things, all things were subjected to the rule of mankind. But here, here's the bad news. We made quick work of abdicating that responsibility that we have had in the beginning and abandoning our post and indulging in sin instead. Instead of ruling rightly, we rejected the, the, the job description that God gave for us right there in the beginning. And it's been the same story ever since. Think about how hard it is for some of us in our work to, to work as hard as we do and get any amount of appreciation for it. It just isn't rewarding. The ground just gives us thorns and thistles. It doesn't matter how hard we work. Think about how many times you've trimmed back those weeds in your backyard. And those suckers just keep coming back. Like creation is in rebellion against you in that, right? 
if we're sub- supposed to rule the birds of the air and fish of the sea, just think about going to the beach in the summertime, right? You go get in the water, and you, you know your kids are with you if you have kids, and they're thinking like, Daddy's there a shark in the water? Am, am I going to get bit? Every single seashell you step on, you think it's a crab? You think everything's about to get you. And Lord help you if you try to eat a sandwich on the beach, right? You open the, the plastic and you get invaded by seagulls that are trying to peck your eyes out. Like, it's, it's going to happen. Like, creation is at war with you. See, we don't see creation under the control of the sons and daughters of the first Adam. And the writer of Hebrews tells us what's next is that we do see creation under the control of the second Adam. And his name is Jesus. Verse 9 tells us this. But we do see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This tells us that Jesus became fully human. Not mostly human, fully human. And as such, he was crowned with glory and honor that we were intended to have in the beginning. It's also important to know why he was crowned with glory and honor. It's because he suffered death. And death on behalf of all who would believe in him to fully show the grace of God to us. I was listening to a podcast this past week uh, called Christ-Centered and Clear, and the host of the podcast, these guys are excellent theologians and pastors, and they were speaking about Hebrews, the beginning passages of Hebrews, and had this phrase uh, about what's going on here in this particular passage, uh, the first verses of chapter 2, in particular 5 through 9. And they said this about this, uh, that the way that they explain this idea of Jesus uh, reinstituting this new humanity is, is uh, of, of being and ruling in the world is not going instead of us, but instead going um, ahead of us in that task. Of, of, of reinstituting the new humanity and taking that glory and honor that was due humanity and what we originally were supposed to bear as a part of God's original intention for the world. Jesus goes ahead of us, but not instead of us in this. See, part of the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, our dignity would be restored, that our role in creation would be fully restored in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking, well, like, how do I command those, those birds? How do I command uh, the wind of the waves like Jesus did? No, that's not the point quite yet. There's another idea called the already not yet that exists right now in your life if you are a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and experience new life in him, it is undeniable that Jesus has changed you, that a miraculous work has happened, that God's uh, design for you has has, has come about in some small ways in your life, but not in, in the way that it's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. Because I don't know about you, I haven't stopped sinning yet. I don't know about you, but I don't experience this level of like rule and control and imaging the righteousness that God wants for me in my life, even though I do experience those things in small ways. Jesus goes ahead of us into this role that we are destined to play in creation. What he does is he shows this right imaging of God by walking perfectly in righteousness. And he also shows this right rule over all creation and, and, and tells us that, and gives us this promise of that in the new heavens and the new earth. See, the writer of Hebrews continues on from here, of focusing on Jesus inaugurating this new humanity. 
to him suffering as our Savior and bringing us into his family. Let's look again at verses 10 through 13 together. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You see Jesus acknowledging us as family, as brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Hear the words of Jesus, church, as a personal testimony of Jesus saying, I trusted in God. Jesus in his humanity, trusting in God and going to the cross to suffer in our place. Jesus in his humanity, dying the death that we deserve for sin, but literally dying, trusting in God that, that God would resurrect him uh, three days later. Jesus' testimony is clear here. He's going to praise God and, and sing his praise in the midst of the congregation, and, and his testimony is clear. See, in this section, we can clearly see the writer is going to clearly answer two questions, though, about Jesus as the suffering Savior. If you've never asked these questions before, these are really important questions to struggle with. These are really important questions to have answers for. The first question is this. Why was Jesus' suffering necessary? Second, what did Jesus' suffering actually accomplish? So let's tackle this first question together. The author of Hebrews really helps us out here. So why was Jesus' suffering necessary? At first, it might sound like an odd question, but if Jesus is God, couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and brought about salvation? If he could uphold the universe by the word of his power, couldn't he have just chosen a different way? You know, why did Jesus need to be incarnate and born as a baby? I don't know about you, but it seems incredibly inconvenient for God to need to go through potty training. Incredibly inconvenient for God to go through puberty. Like, this is wild, that God would choose this path, right? But the Bible makes it incredibly clear that this was not optional. It is crucial that Jesus suffered as a man. The early church fathers, the, the Cappadocians, uh, explained that it was absolutely necessary that Jesus take on the entirety of human nature. And they used this phrase that I think is incredibly helpful, that that which is not assumed is not healed say that again. That which is not assumed is not healed. Whatever's not taken on can't be healed. This means that in order to fully heal humanity, you and I, Jesus was going to need to assume the fullness of human nature. We explain this in theological terms that God and Jesus was forever and always has been God in his divinity. But he added to his God nature human nature and assumed the nature of that, that we have as humans, fully God and fully man, body, soul, spirit, mind, everything except for sin. Because Jesus did not have a sin nature, could not, because he was perfect. This makes sense of what the, the odd phrase in verse 10 tells us. Hey, did anybody pick up on that when we read through that? He was made perfect through suffering. Like, what does that mean? No, it can't mean that Jesus was imperfect before. If Jesus is God, he cannot be imperfect. And it doesn't mean he's incomplete before. But now that Jesus has assumed humanity, now he can 
the demons. It was fitting that Jesus suffer. It was fitting that Jesus be made perfect, making that like a complete image. Now that he's added humanity to his divinity, now he can redeem us. Even Jesus says himself in Luke 9, this is Jesus speaking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things. Catch that? Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. Jesus himself, I must be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus says this right on the heels of Peter confessing him as the Messiah, the Redeemer of God's people, the one that, that everyone was hoping in that was going to kick out the Romans and you know place them on a throne on high and make them rule and reign like they were in olden times. How could Jesus save his people if he was going to die? The good news is that Jesus' death would be the means that God would use to save his people. That's what brings us to what Jesus' suffering actually accomplished. Verse 11 tells us that in our union with Jesus, that he is the one who sanctifies us. That means to make us holy, to make us look more like Jesus. That word holy means to set us apart, to take away from everything else. It's not going to get any dust on it. It's not going to anything to clutter it up. It's going to be set apart. It's going to be holy. It's going to be different than everything else. And it's Jesus is the one who does that to us in our union with him. You know what that means? It means that through Jesus, we really do have hope for real change. That you and I really do have a hope that we really are going to change. And it's not a try harder behavior modification type of change, but a real hope that's miraculous, accomplished by none other than Jesus himself. He's the guarantee of it. Follow Jesus in the room. You have the hope of real change. If you are in Christ Jesus, you really do, because he is the one who's going to accomplish it. But verse 10 tells us that the result of Jesus' suffering is not just our sanctification, but it was to bring many sons to glory. Literally, this is how we could be uh, make it back home to where God is. Back in the very beginning of all things, where God and man existed in perfect harmony with one another, we want to go back home to where that is. It may be surprising to us, but it's what the author of Hebrews emphasizes here, that Jesus' suffering brings us back into the family of God. Brought back in. Follow Jesus here today. You may need reminding that Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his sister. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his family and identify with you. God the Father loved you enough to send Jesus his son to die for you, and after Jesus suffers incalculable pain on the cross for you and your sin, he gets out of the grave, and the first thing on his lips isn't, get to work, earn your keep. First things on his lips is, you are my brother, you are my sister, you are my family, welcome in. This is what Jesus speaks to us in the gospel. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what the offer of the gospel is, it's a new dignity, a new role in creation, a new family in Jesus, and the hope of eternal life and real change. Why would you reject that offer? It's free, unmerited. You can't earn it. It's offer on the table for you right now. But the stakes are just as high if you reject this offer. And the author of Hebrews is going to make this argument all throughout this letter as we continue this over the past next number of months. 
that if you reject this, if you reject this offer of Jesus, this will be to your ruin. This will ruin your whole life. There's a future awaiting you, not of heaven and eternity with Jesus, but hell and suffering for you eternally. This is really, really bad news for you. Not all the writer of Hebrews has to say about why we should come to Jesus for help, though. Jesus also saves us from the power of death and serves as our high priest. Let's look again at verses 14 through 15. Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children, that's us now, share in the same flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy our enemy, the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Stop there for now. See, Jesus destroys the power of death. Did you catch that? Through death itself. Right? It's almost a mockery of whatever power Satan thinks that he has over death. That Jesus shows and proves, I am almighty beyond all uh, comprehension because I'm going to use the one thing that you think you have the power over to actually be the means by which I show my dominance over you forever. I'm going to rescue my people by dying. See, remember the devil doesn't have power in and of himself. He has power because God is sovereign. Remember even the, in the case of Job, where the devil comes before God and says, this man, if I, if I just take enough stuff from him, he's going to curse you, God, and, and forget you. And that, what we see in that story is God only, his role in that is like, yeah, I'm going to trust here. And I'm going to give you some chain, but I'm going to determine the length of that chain that you're going to be able to, to afflict this man with. See, all the devil's power actually isn't over death itself. His only real power is to accuse. And I, I know we always we have a common enemy here in this room, and it's not just the devil, it's lawyers, right? This is what lawyers do, they accuse. Look at this thing, you know, here's the evidence, here's the proof. You're guilty and you're deserving whatever the punishment is. This is what Satan does with us. This is what the devil does with us. Look at this thing in your life. Could, could, what, could anyone really love you after you did that? You are deserving of hell. You're deserving of suffering and punishment. But here's the thing. In the courtroom of, of, of God, now Christ has come in and shown that these charges don't stick anymore. He has taken our suffering. He has taken uh, what we deserve. He has taken death itself in our place, and now the charges won't stick. The verdict has already been read, and we have been declared righteous before God. Church, is that good news or what? Amen. See, now Christ, in Christ, he delivers us from the fear of death. And understandably, many of us who are followers of Jesus know the truth that Jesus saves us from the fear of death, We'd still say that we are afraid of dying. And I just want to say, if that's you here this morning, that is not an irrational fear. Um, and let me explain it like this. There's two, death and dying are two different things. Okay. This passage clearly teaches us that the power of death has been removed. Even our slavery to the fear of death is now broken because of what Jesus has done. But death itself is still terrifying. I mean, we think about the pain, we think about suffering, we think about cancer, or the disease, or saying goodbye to our loved ones. 
almost everyone in this room has experienced the death of someone that we love or someone close to us in some way, shape, or form. Through the gospel and through what Jesus has accomplished, death has itself has lost its sting for believers because we know what lies beyond it now. Glory in the presence of God himself. The glory and the dignity that has now been restored to us by what Jesus has won for us by going ahead of us. It's okay to be afraid of dying. But we who trust in Jesus have no reason to fear death itself. Because any future beyond the grave for us who follow Jesus that we might be fearful of, we can take those fears right off of ourselves. Moment by moment, day by day, because we know we have this promise of what Jesus has said. That, that all who would trust in him would, would get this promise of eternal life through him. The last thing that the writer of Hebrews wants us to know is that we should actually go to Jesus as our faithful high priest because Jesus is able to help us when we are tempted. Let's look at verses 16 and 18 one last time. Verse 16. For it is surely, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. The writer of Hebrews is just sticking it to the angels one last time here. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he, before, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In these three verses, the word help again, as is mentioned three different times. And these verses make it clear who Jesus wants to help, who he has come to. First, Jesus helps the offspring of Abraham. These are the ones who believe and trust in the promises of God, like the very first promise given to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. The ones who actually believe that promise and walk in obedience and faith like Abraham did. God told him, go, and Abraham went. God didn't even tell him where to go. He just went. That's whom Jesus wants to come and help, the ones who believe the promises of God. Jesus helps his brothers and his sisters. He helps human beings made in the image of God, the ones he has come to be like, the ones he has learned weakness, because Jesus didn't know what weakness was in his divinity. If you thought about this before, that Jesus, in, his, in the incarnation, when he became man, he had to learn what it was like to be weak. Learn what it was like to, to obey. It learned what it was like uh, to do anything outside of being sovereign over everything. And Jesus helps also those who need their sins atoned for. Because he's the only one who can atone for those sins in a perfect way. He never sinned. See, Jesus comes and goes before God to make propitiation for the sins. That means satisfy the wrath of God for sin. Because Jesus helps those who are being tempted. That's us. The ones in need of help. Like the passage in Mark that we read earlier. Jesus came not to, uh, for the, the ones that were healthy, the ones that were well. He came for the sick and the ones that knew that they were sick. See, what's good news for us this morning, again, is to be reminded that we are in need of Jesus. Like, we haven't arrived yet, y'all. Like, we don't have all of our stuff together. We don't just, uh, with everything else good going on in our lives, we need just to add a little bit of, like, sugar Jesus on top to make everything sweeter. No, Jesus is the point of it all. Everything in our whole life needs Jesus' help. You don't have anything on lock. 
You don't have anything under your own control. Everything could be shattered in your life in a moment. Jesus comes to say, no, I have control. In the places that you have failed, I am going to make propitiation for you. I'm going to cover over your sin. I'm going to satisfy the wrath of God. Because what propitiation means is to offer a sacrifice that appeases God's just judgment and righteous anger against us and our sin. The sin really is that bad. In the eyes of God, it deserves death. Hear this. Jesus, as our great high priest, is not just simply the one, the propitiator, the one who brings the propitiation before God, but he is also the propitiation itself. His death for sin is what satisfies the justice of God, and he is both at once the priest, offering the sacrifice before God. He is also the Lamb of God that was slain. He is the one who satisfies the wrath of God, and the one whose death is the one who actually covers over our sins. So this morning, if you need help, there is only one place you can go. There's only one hope for a restored humanity. We're not going to figure it out, Lord, help us with our government. We're not going to figure it out with more education. We're not going to figure it out with just trying to do more and try harder in the world. There's only one hope for a restored humanity. It's Jesus. There's only one hope for a new family. Maybe yours is broken. Maybe yours is shattered. Maybe yours is on the, the verge of crumbling. And in Jesus, you do get a good family to come around you, to point you to the good news of Jesus as often as you need it. The Bible says that's daily. Like every single day we need to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. And it takes a whole family surrounding you to be able to do this. And in Jesus, you get freedom from the fear of death. What are the things in your life that are maybe paralyzing this, this power of the fear of death playing into your life. Maybe it's keeping you from taking chances to advance the gospel. Maybe you're paralyzed by fear of the unknown. Maybe you're aging and just scared about the final years of your life. Jesus can be trusted with those fears because he walked through them himself. Final question I'll ask you this morning is, are you coming to Jesus as your merciful and faithful high priest? Let me just say, it is easy for me, and I know for others, just go to something else. Just listen to another podcast. Be, be a passive learner and pacify myself with something else that's a distraction. Maybe it's even through a daily devotional. You're, you're watching a social media influencer on your phone. You're just kind of getting your little gospel kick from someone else. But you're not actually going to Jesus yourself. You're not going before the one who can actually do anything for you because human priests as we'll see later in the book of Hebrews, they're not going to get you what you need. Human priests can, cannot satisfy the wrath of sin that God uh, will justly pour out on you. Human priests can't do that for you. There's only one, and his name is Jesus. So I know that this is simple. Maybe this week you carve out just a few minutes. Maybe it's this morning. You carve out just a few minutes to go before God in prayer. This is our means by which we commune with God. These are means by which we approach, boldly approach the throne of King Jesus and say, I need help. You're the only one that can meet me. Church, let me pray that we would. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning um, we would really believe this good news, that you are our high priest. 
and he's going to be trusted. And thank you for my life over your help. God, for those who feel conflicted, I feel ashamed for those that feel far from you, God. And I pray through your word and by your spirit, maybe through an encouraging word or word of rebuke to some people, you speak what we need to hear this morning. God, that you would um, allow us to be able to um, open up in community with others and to bear our burdens so that they can be carried to others in the group who would only know uh, that it is ultimately you that we go to with. God, I pray that you would form us into a people uh, that are just radically dependent on you through every aspect of our lives and also to are radically committed to one another and that this house by which we give and go the community and the life of others would um, see gospel change and happen in our own lives, not just by you, uh, but in the community of others. I pray that.